The Fed, consumer sentiment, and the aftershock economy. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Thanks for being here. Got a great hour planned for you. Let's get right to it with a week in review. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, welcome. Thank you, Danny. Dave Spano, our President and CEO, welcome to you. Yeah, thank you, Danny. And of course, you know, here we are in a new bull market. And I know that's hard for some people to believe, but if you go back until October of last year to where we are this week, we're up nearly 23, 24% from that bottom. And that is a heck of a rally, Derek. It certainly is. I mean, clearly, Wall Street was poorly positioned for this bounce. Uh, the economy's been more resilient than even the Fed thought, and corporate earnings continue to deliver. In fact, we're actually looking for second quarter earnings to be actually flat if you exclude energy. And you look across the sectors, the things that are doing well, there's no doubt that the big tech stocks have really pulled us along, representing a big part of the game, but that story is starting to expand. Well, it is. I mean, we saw a really sharp rally in small caps last week. That petered out a little bit this week, but the Magnificent Seven continue to carry the day. That's the new buzzword that Kramer has adopted, so I may as well borrow that. And that's Apple, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Meta. And you look at those big tech stocks and will the story continue and will it continue as AI becomes more of a story? You really can't get away from it. For everywhere we look, we're talking more about that conversation, but they really is beginning to expand and it's beginning to expand because you look at where we were and what the expectations are. We saw the Fed meet this week and they really, they did what we expected them to do, Derek, which is to pause. However, we do not know what they're going to do next time around. Well, we don't. And the other thing that surprised the markets and frankly, surprised me by the market's reaction was that they actually upwardly revised the dot plots. In other words, their expectations for where rates are going in the future. In fact, four of the Fed members were actually calling for three more rate hikes. So clearly they're going to be data dependent. A lot's going to depend on what the price of oil does and gasoline. And then we'll see. But by and large, people are taking this as a feeling that the Fed is close to done. And that's also helped the multiples on those magnificent seven stocks. And it really gives you a bit to pause on because you look at the story that we have talked about for the last year, no doubt we pounded inflation into the ground. We certainly talked about the Federal Reserve and what they've done, potential recession, the debt ceiling conversation, all of this made the market climb a wall of worry, but that's exactly what it did. And you look at the consumer sentiment, and that's really something we're watching closely now. Right. We saw the consumer sentiment saw a sharp rise in June of 8%, the highest point it's been in four months. It's still at a very depressed level relative to history, but certainly going in the right direction. And the positive wealth effects of a a rising stock market and a strong housing market certainly causes people to feel a little bit better about the future. And of course, jobs. We saw a jobs report 29 straight months now of job gains. And if you really take that report apart, it is interesting because if you look at the folks that are 25 to 54, 83% of them are working. So, you know, we talk about labor participation, that rate being down. There's no doubt that people retired or they changed jobs or they're staying at home, whatever it is. But those who are in working age condition, continue to work. And that, of course, is driving a big part of the economy because people are working and that drives consumer sentiment. Right. And I do want to give an update on that fear and greed index that we talk about a lot. This week, it hit a new high for the year at 83, which is a very elevated number. In other words, there's a lot of optimism out there, extreme greed, if you will. But the underpinnings, the technical underpinnings in particular, are getting more and more solid. We're above the 200-day moving average. We're above the 50-day moving average. The percent of stocks above the 50 and 200 is increasing, as you mentioned, in terms of breadth. 
So the technical prospects for the market look pretty good. Of course, we could have a correction at any time, but it's certainly a much different story than it was last year. And let's talk about being a contrarian because you and I often talk about this. When everyone was calling for a recession, we said there's a possibility that the Fed might get it right and that they could get a soft landing. But here we are rallying from 23, 24% from where we are. But folks, it is not unlikely that we still could go back to where we were sometime between now and the end of the year. Right. I mean, the the prospects for a recession have certainly dimmed in 2023, but there are still many calling for a recession in 2024. And they talk about banks being less willing to lend, the the persistent inversion of the yield curve, talk about valuations. We're now trading almost 20 times forward earnings. So, you know, you have to have a balanced approach, which is what I think is one of the strengths of our investment committee. We have people have all sorts of different opinions. We had some who thought we'd have a hard landing. We had some that thought we'd have a soft landing. Some thought that we wouldn't have a negative GDP print at all. So, you know, there are a variety of opinions, but through all of that conversation, I think it clarifies our direction and sets us apart from our competitors. And as you go through this process, folks, there's no really one right answer, which is the reason why you have to go through this and have this diversified portfolio that we talk about. But where it's diversified and how it's diversified can change significantly on who you talk to. That is the reason why you have to go through the process, get to your goals and your personal circumstances. That is so important. Annex Wealth Management is built on a team concept, investment teams, retirement planning teams, tax planning teams, estate planning teams, deep bench, very talented. Put them to work. Head to the Annex Wealth Management website at AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Looking for the Week in Review? You can get it at the top of the hour on Spotify, in the Axiom Newsletter, or wherever you get your podcasts. Saturday, June 17th, Father's Day weekend. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. We are back. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, is here. Dave Spano, President and CEO, Annex Wealth Management. Thanks, Danny. You know, Derek, you talked a little bit about uh, some risks to the market, and of course, one of those is the real estate market. We've covered this and talked about it, but I did see the 30-year mortgage for residential real estates ticked off of 7% this past week. And you look at inventories, you look at what's called the CMBS market, and there is something that is really shocking. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that said between 80 and 90% of some of these CMBS loans are interest only. And if that comes to fruition, a lot of this real estate is going to be put under pressure, which means the regional banks will be put under pressure. Well, I read that one of the largest hotels in San Francisco, the the owner of that paper balked. I mean, and it's in Union Square, you know, right in the middle of San Francisco. So, you know, in in big cities like New York, San Francisco, Austin, Texas has some issues. I mean, there's a lot of things out there that can percolate. I mean, clearly the Fed acted very aggressively uh, when we had the crisis regarding uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. But again, you know, there are a lot of banks out there and there's a lot of paper that's underwater. And the question is, is this economy going to be able to sustain enough so that their default rates don't rise dramatically? And you look at default rates and really what's happening with interest rates is really where I want to go. And you can see the short term interest rate over 5% on some of these short term treasuries. That's shocking to a lot of people, even all the way out to a two year treasury, all the way up to 4.7%. People listening to this right now, Derek, say, maybe I should get me some of that. Well, I mean, it's certainly not a bad option. It certainly gives you dry powder in the event that we do have a correction to reload and allocate your portfolio in areas that are attractive. Uh, and, and, you know, essentially, if you believe the long-term return potential 
potential, the S&P 500 is roughly 9%, and you can get 5% risk-free. That sounds pretty good, particularly if you're older and worried about where your paycheck is coming from. Now, of course, the problem is when those notes come due, what are you going to do with it? But it certainly is a position that you can sit on the sideline and wait. But, you know, we're not advocating that anyone tried to time the market. We're just saying, of course, I think that this whole debate has been kicked down the road in a number of ways, and we saw that with the debt cycle and the fact that the, the limit has been removed and put till after the election. So, you know, we could see substantially more Treasury debt coming due. That is a cause of concern for many people. Right, and we've talked about this often. In fact, we talk about with one of our colleagues a lot, and that is that, you know, with entitlement spending going in the direction it is, with interest expenses going the direction they are, you'd have to think at some point we're going to have to have either a rationalization of some of those benefit programs or higher taxes or both. And I think that is what's coming down the road. There's one more thing I do want to get to, and that is, of course, commodity prices. We saw, as expected, OPEC did say they were going to cut some supply that, that was out there at the same time that our demand is going up as we go into driving season. That is the expectation that you're going to see higher oil prices and gas prices, which puts more pressure on the Fed. Right. And and also the dollar. I mean, right now, our central bank actually is a little bit looser than other global central banks. So we saw the dollar uh, correct dramatically to the downside this week, and that could add inflationary pressures down the road as well. The other thing with oil is the Chinese, uh, unlike all the other central banks, are actually easing. Their recovery from COVID has been not what they'd expected. Their exports are down. And we have a 20% unemployment rate in people below the age of 20 who are looking to work. So they're stimulating. And, and if they stimulate, that's more oil demand coming from there, which is an important source of, of pricing pressure. And we talk about uh, stimulation, at least from central governments. But, you know, the one thing that you threw at me this week was called QE fatigue. Can you explain what that means? Well, I mean, the central bankers, you know, have been using QE in order to levitate their economies for the last decade, really since the great financial crisis. And they're not in the position to continue to do that. And while we're talking about rate hikes all the time, we have to remember the Fed is engaged in quantitative tightening. They are removing liquidity from the markets and markets feed on liquidity. And the debt ceiling debate's another thing. Now that the debt ceiling has been passed, there's going to be a lot of treasury issuance coming, and that could cause pressure on interest rates as well. So there are a lot of moving factors. And what we like to do is do sensitivity analysis. It's one thing you do is you say, okay, what's what's our estimate for 2024 earnings? Right now, the consensus sits at 246. So if you multiply that by 20, that gets you to about 4,800, which is, which is a target of one of the more bullish strategists. But if you have a more reasonable multi of, say, 17, we're basically at fair value now, which is why I say up 5%. Perhaps you reassess your portfolio, make sure you're not overallocated to hot sectors. And down 5%, you reallocate the other way. Derekowski, Chief Investment Officer, thank you. You're very welcome. Dave Spano, our President and CEO, thank you. Thank you, Danny. Women tend to start retirement planning late. Why is that? What can be done? We're going to take a break and be back with it next. Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. Cut through the clutter with Axiom, the weekly newsletter from Annex Wealth Management. Subscribe today for seven insights built and delivered to you every Sunday. It'll help you navigate the markets and the things that affect your money. The Axiom. Sign up at AnnexWealth.com. Know the difference? 
team segment, Deanne Phillips, CFP, CDFA, Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management. Hey, Deanne. Hey, Danny. You want the good news or the bad news? Oh, the good news, please. Oh, thank you. Okay, here's the good news. Women outlive their male counterparts by six to eight years. Now, I don't know if my husband would think yeah. that's good news. Well, I know, and I'm a guy <laughs> delivering that news. The bad news is, is that women tend to wind up as the caregivers for ailing parents or significant others. Not to mention children, too. Right. With that in mind, it's not a surprise that the 2019 Trust and Estates Women in Wealth survey found women aren't starting their planning nearly early enough. I'm preaching to the choir. Right. No, the, uh, you absolutely are. That's very true. You never know when an incident will hit. But unfortunately, the survey showed that over 50% of women wait until something happens, death, divorce, disability, something major in their lives, where they take a look and say, oh my gosh, I better engage help. I mean, more good news on the women front, though, is women as a whole tend to be more comfortable initially asking for help. Mm. It's just they're not asking and planning early enough right now, statistically. They're waiting until there's emotional turmoil going on. And it's very difficult to do the kind of decisioning that is really needed for long-term financial planning when you're in that, going through that emotional turmoil. Is this a version of when a guy won't stop and ask for directions? Yes, right? that's it, good. It, that's it kind true. Of is. How about this? Is this stat true? 80% of women die single, and that could mean widowed, yeah. meaning they're left to foot their own medical and... You, Long-term care, especially if long-term care has been depleted, maybe for caring, caring for a spouse. You know, what's really unfortunate is the average age of widowhood still stands in the late 50s, like 58, 59 years old. And that's so young. But, you know, that statistic, when you think about it, pretty daunting, you know, because at that point, you're already going to be, if you stay single, down a Social Security check. I mean, think about it. You and I are married. We both have our working. By the time we have that retirement together, we've got double the... Social Security income at least coming in. So there definitely needs to be contingency planning that happens kind of to get women prepared for this outlivingness way before they're 50 years old. Now, if you're listening out there and like me, you say, whoops, I missed that target. What mm-hmm. do I do? It's never too late to start. Um, this is why we give the Women in Wealth workshops that we do, Danny, and why Annex has such a, a long term good relationship with education in general, particularly of women. The topic is women that aren't starting their financial planning, retirement planning nearly early enough. And I've got to ask WWDP, which is, <laughs> what would Deanne Phillips do? What do you suggest? Sure. So I have some suggestions. First off, we need to have access to that emergency fund, putting that money away that we can tap into at any time. Women as a whole, we like cash as a whole, but we need to be good custodians of that cash and put it to work smartly. So there are resources that can keep the money liquid, but... Um, Uh, continue to have you safe. So that emergency fund. Know your credit also. Know the credit of your spouse too. Very important. That will guide, you know, if there is something that changes your status in the future, your accessibility to housing, to utilities, all that. You got to keep, know your credit score, keep it good. There are ways to improve it. So a spouse's 820 credit score is not the other spouse's, huh? It's not necessarily so, no. So you need to check them both. Um, Have a centralized location for your very important papers. So, you know, we here at Annex have something that we call what my family needs to know or grab and go binder Mm -hmm. that's electronic writable PDF where people can put in things like if you and I are married again, Danny, go Mm -hmm. back to this and you pay all the bills online. Let's see. 
this would be my chance to be able to capture what's the URL you go to, how much do you pay, how does this work, right? What's your password, right? What's your username when you log in? These are really important things, but a lot of times one spouse takes care of the budgeting, the other might take care of the investments, and this is just a chance before tragedy or before a life-changing thing to coordinate those efforts. And it's not too late, right? If somebody oh, no. needs to reach out to your financial planner, uh, establish a relationship with a good fiduciary, for sure, like Annex Wealth Management, right. and get that stuff in place and in order because it's super duper important. That's really important. So we're not going to um, sit there and say, wow, there's somebody who's fearful in front of us. Let's sell them a product against that. The, it, it, we as a fiduciary are not going to push a product. We're going to do comprehensive financial planning for you and partner with you in your success and make sure that your ducks are in a row for things. Deanne Phillips, CFP, CDFA, and Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk locations because we've got a bunch and we'd love to meet with you. We're in Elm Grove, Lake Country, Mequon, Appleton, downtown Milwaukee, right inside the Pfister, Madison, Naples, Florida, and Libertyville, Illinois, and always at AnnexWealth.com. Bottom of the hour on Saturday, June 17th. Let's get caught up and head to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Back on the show, and it's time for Ask Annex. As always, got a question for us, you head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button. If we can help, Get Started is the button you want to hit. Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager and CFP at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Hey, Danny. Sarah Kyles, a Wealth Manager. Hello. Hi, Danny. First question today on Ask Annex. Is a 401k loan a decent option compared to a home equity line of credit? Borrowing from a 401k isn't ideal, but it could make sense if you need some short-term money and you plan to pay it back in less than a year. Now, the key is short term. Just some of the things that you want to consider and that maybe some of the downside of borrowing from your 401k is that you have five years to pay back that loan. But if you leave your job or you get fired, you have 60 days that you have to pay it back. So you just want to make sure you're secure in your job. Secondly, that's double taxation. So now you're paying back this loan with after-tax money. And then when you take that money out again, it's going to be taxed. And the 401k is really meant to be in there for the long haul. So if you take money out, you could permanently damage your portfolio if you wait five years to pay it back because all that money is not in the market growing and making that compound interest. Next on Ask Annex, is being a huge fan of a product or company a reason to invest in it? I'm a huge fan of Apple, love everything about them, but it's also at or near an all-time high. Great question, and something that, that gets brought up a lot to us. You know, it certainly can be, you know, investing in what you know can be a powerful way to invest, or at least to give you an idea of what are some companies that you should look at to invest in. Our investment team, especially when we're looking at individual securities, kind of have three areas that we look at. What is the fundamentals of a company? What's the valuation of a company? And how is it trading? So fundamentals is essentially what you're getting for the company. So what's their balance sheet like? What type of margins do they have? Are they profitable or not? Is there a wide moat around that company? Value is how expensive is that company? So you have earnings, but how much do you have to pay to get those earnings? And then trading, what does the market think about it? Is it something that has momentum and is, is moving higher? Is it something that's choppy or not doing well? It's really important to know how expensive you're going to pay for because if you're paying a lot for those future earnings, your expected return going forward is, is not going to be as high as it used to be. So you really want to know what you're getting and how much you're paying for it to see if it's a good investment or not. 
just because a stock is at a certain price doesn't mean that it's expensive or cheap. There's plenty of stocks that trade at $3 or $5 that are overvalued. And there's plenty of stocks that trade at $200 that are cheap. So you have to do your due diligence and you have to do your research. You can't just blindly go, okay, this stock is making a new high. It's overvalued. And then keep in mind, if you like a stock and you really like it, just buy a little bit. And if that stock goes down, then you can buy some more. But if you want a stock, you wanted to get a little exposure, you just buy a little bit and then see what happens. Yeah, that's a great point. Share price is, is somewhat irrelevant from a standpoint of what the company's worth because some companies do stock splits and some don't. If a company's, their share price is going to be too high, they might think they're pricing out a lot of investors, so they'll do a, a stock split and move it back down. But that doesn't change the value of the company. You're really looking at the market cap at that point, which is shares times price at that point to get the true value. But ultimately, you wanted to be able to divide whatever that value is by what earnings you're getting for that price you're paying. Ask Annex got a question for us. Head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab. Next up, am I unwise to concentrate most of the U.S.-based portion of my portfolio toward the S&P 500? What other indices should I consider that are U.S.-based? Yeah, from a U.S. perspective, the S&P 500, it represents about 80% of the total investable market in the U.S. Now, it is a market cap-weighted index. So companies that have high market caps, like Apple, for example, is the largest company in the S&P 500 and the largest company in the world from a publicly traded standpoint. So they represent a lot. And then mid caps and small caps, you know, a lot less. So from an S&P 500 standpoint, about 80% of it, just a little bit, is what you would consider the large cap universe with the United States. The rest of it is mid caps. There's actually no small cap exposure at all within the S&P 500. And when you look at the total investable market in the U.S., about 8% is small caps. So you're missing out on that portion of the market, really. The other part you're missing out is being able to tilt between growth and value when you're doing that. The S&P is a momentum index. So as companies do better, their share price goes up, the value that market cap goes up, and it crowds out a lot of the other companies. So you're really playing what's doing hot, which is helpful when those things are doing really well. But if there's a sell-off in that market, you're going to see that reverse effect there. So you need to know what you're doing there. But ultimately, if what you're going to miss is mid and small cap exposure to the extent that you might want that in a diversified portfolio. And we'll close the show with a little feedback on last week's Ask Annex. Just my two cents worth. Thanks for last week's advice for young people and the resumption of student loan payments. Nice job. Thank you. That's going to be something when all of a sudden that cash flow changes for those people that are paying back. Yep. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. You bet. Matt Morris, the Investment Team Manager. Thank you. Thank you. There are plenty of myths about millionaires. What are they and why are most of them wrong? That's next after a break on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. Brandon Lehman, a wealth manager and director of branch development at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Danny, good to see you. According to Fidelity's Millionaire Outlook study, the vast majority of millionaires, 82%, are self-made. They didn't inherit money. They built their wealth themselves. Let's talk about that because we have a list of millionaire myths, and I'm sure you've run into some. Oh, yeah. There's quite a few stories out there of you know what do you need to do, how you are, and, and one of the biggest ones to me kind of jumps into number one there, and I'll let you run with it, but it's really important. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. And I think this must be frustrating for people that have achieved millionaire status. Let's go with number one. If you have a high salary, you are set for life. You would think that. And and sometimes that's kind of the myth out there is you make a lot of money, you're going to have a lot of money. But really, some people grow into that income. They grow into that high salary and they actually don't save. They want to keep up with the Joneses. But really, it's there are certain individuals who have sat down and said, you know what, to be a millionaire, I do have a high salary, but I am going to save this. I'm going to save that. Diligently focused on saving as much as they could to better themselves for retirement. 
retirement. And that's really what they're concerned with. A lot of millionaires, it's not the now, it's when can I finally retire? And you'll see later on in some of these myths that it's actually a lot later in life, they work harder. Fidelity study found that on average, 31% of millionaires' salaries go to savings. So right, they're putting in. Yeah, that is their number one goal is just to put away to put away. Millionaire myth number two, it's all luck. That is very much a myth because a lot of the folks that we talk to here at Annex have worked extremely hard. They put in long hours, long nights, long days, time away from their family to build this legacy, not just for themselves, but sometimes for their family. They're doing it and they're putting in the time and the effort to get to where they want to be. Millionaire myth number three, you have to make all your money before you retire. See, that one is great to me because when I think about it, there are so many people that I've met throughout my career that were not millionaires before they retired, but they went into retirement and they did two things. First off, they continued to remain invested. They didn't do bring it all down, be cautious, be safe. They said, you know what? We have a long time frame. some situations, 30 plus years in retirement. We need to keep this growing for us. The second thing they did is they watched their spending. Seeing a common theme here. They watched how much they were spending and where their dollars were going. Millionaire myth number four, you must have a fancy college degree. That is extremely inaccurate. While it does help to have a great degree from a Harvard, a Yale, things like that, you know, the vast majority of people do not. They are self-made millionaires who have gone out and started a business and put in the time, put in the effort, and were able to find a niche or an opportunity to grow that business. The key is they put in the effort, they put in the work, and they strived so hard and put so much forth to grow their wealth to reach that millionaire status. You know the classic book from the 80s. I read it, The Millionaire Next Door. I think one of the best lines I've ever heard is, you know, the farmer next door yep. really is a millionaire, a yep. multimillionaire now with you look at land prices and where they're at. But, you know, they, they work hard, they save their money, and they don't overspend. Millionaire myth number five, they work for big banks, law firms, and tech companies. Well, some of them do. Yeah. Yeah, there's, they definitely do. But the vast majority do not. You know, you look at it, 66% of millionaires own their own business. They start out, they have nothing. They, they pour their heart and soul into this, whatever business they have, whether it's owning a paper printing company or a clothing store, whatever they, they do, they pour their heart and soul into it. And it takes years. And that's what people don't see is all those years of sweat equity that they put into it. The famous thing I've always seen on LinkedIn, I, I love LinkedIn. And is you see the the pyramid of the first, second, and third place, and they're standing in the first place position. But underneath that pyramid, under the ground, is all that sweat equity, that work they put in over 10, 15, 20, 30 plus years to build that business. Millionaire myth number six, success comes easily and early. Oh, that's a great one. One, nothing in life is easy when it comes to hard work. But the second thing that is extremely important is you're seeing the age of millionaires get older and older because they are working harder and working longer. Maybe 70 is the new 55, but they continue to strive and they diversify their income streams. This is one that has always been interesting to me when I sit down and meet with millionaires and specifically business owners. The one thing I always notice is the same across the board. They own the business, but then they own the building in a separate business in which the business is housed, the business pays them rent. So they're able to diversify their income streams. And then if they sell the business, maybe they keep the building. That is a common one you see as well. We got two more. Millionaire myth number seven, they don't have anything to worry about. That is a big myth because everybody has the same thing to worry about and it's always health. A lot of these folks, especially small business owners, have put everything behind them just to make sure their business takes off. A lot of people have put 
everything they can into their business and kind of pushed off their health. And that's something we tend to see too. These small business owners have worked so hard and they've forgotten about taking care of themselves. And that's a big concern when they come in here. They say, you know, I've worked 30, 40 years. It's time for me to take care of myself. The other thing is, you know, how do they leave money behind? A legacy is so important to a lot of these folks. They want to take care of their family, take care of their kids. And then just financial security. You work, 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 save, save, save. And then at some point that flips and now you're not saving, you're withdrawing. And that's a scary moment for a lot of folks. And the millionaire myth number eight, the final, they've got their future all figured out. That's the reason we're around. They come in here, they are experts at what they do. And I, and I say this all the time. They are the subject matter experts or in the military, we call it, they're the SMEs in their area. But there's other areas where they're just not as comfortable. So they come to Annex and they sit down with us because we can bring all those teams to them. We bring the experts in the tax, we bring the experts in the estate, we bring the experts in the planning and the investment. This way, they don't have to worry about having it figured out because they know they have a team behind them to figure it out for them, and they can worry about the things they want to do and take care of their health, their family, and their future. We are ready to assist investment, retirement planning, tax planning, estate planning as a fee-only fiduciary. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Click the Get Started button. Brandon Lehman, Director of Branch Development and a Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for your time. Danny, thank you. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Quick reminder, this show is going to be available as a podcast on Spotify at the top of the hour. Apple Podcasts as well. If you prefer that, that's no problem at all. Things you can do, sign up for the Axiom, our free weekly newsletter. We're on social media like LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. A lot of Annex Wealth Management, great videos there. I think over 1,500 by now. Lots of instruction there. Graphonomics from Annex Wealth Management. Three graphs that'll help you make sense of the economy. It'll be right on the front page of AnnexWealth.com. In fact, the author of Graphonomics is now joining us on the show, Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I spent a little time with Graphonomics this weekend. I like it because it kind of breaks it down. I mean, I absorb a lot on this show, but a lot of times I need to kind of absorb it a little bit more. And you being a instructor, right? This yep. is the, this work. Now, at what level? This isn't fifth grade. This is higher <laughs> level, right? Yeah, so I, I teach at the master's level, uh, but I've actually taught all the way from like, you know, kindergarten all the way on, on up uh, to the graduate level. And I try to really gear graphic economics more towards somebody who is interested in the economy and the markets, but hasn't necessarily had formal training in it. Um, not to say that those who have had formal training can't benefit from it, because I like to try to take all of my years of experience and try to bring it to bear on what are what I think are some of the like the three biggest topics that were important to the markets, and then also help shape our view here at Annex on our investment committee about thinking about where opportunities and threats might be for the month and months ahead. You know the internet abbreviation ELI5? Uh, I haven't heard that well, one. Well, that stands for explain like I'm five. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's nice. Right. I like that. That's really good. So ELI5, your view of last week with the Fed. Yeah. Yeah. So the Federal Reserve, they had their policy meeting on Wednesday. And I think one of the more interesting parts of what happened wasn't necessarily the policy statement. It was really the interview, the press conference that took place afterwards. So the policy statement came out and the Fed decided to hold rates where they were. But then they wanted to really drive home the message that they don't think they're done yet that this isn't a holding pattern, they're not intent on maybe cutting rates in the future, that this is just a pause, and then they can hit the play button again come July. But then in the press conference, Chair Powell basically said, we're not so sure 
that we're going to need to hit that play button. So he sort of introduced this idea that there's a lot of uncertainty about how the data will roll in between now and their next meeting. And their next meeting is towards the end of July. So they're going to get more inflation data. They're going to get another employment situation report. And they're going to have to see how things shake out before they really decide whether or not they need to hike more or not. During the press conference, is that a friendly lot of journalists compared to what he's looking at next week? Uh, You know, so next week, that is the fun thing. He gets to testify before Congress. I think you said the word grill. (laughs) Yes, it is going to be a grilling because the the beginning part is always, you know, he has his prepared statements. He gets to testify before the House Committee on Wednesday and then before the Senate Banking Committee on Thursday. Deliver the same speech, so prepared remarks about, you know, two to three minutes worth, but then it's like hours of grilling from our lawmakers. And that's where it gets a little testy. So when he's in front of the press corps on this past week with the Federal Open Market Committee, it's, you know, usually they do grill him a little bit, but they they know each other and they know that if they're too mean to him, he's not going to give them a straight answer. Whereas our elected representatives, they don't care. You know, I mean, the chair Powell basically reports to them. And so they're going to try to hold his feet to the fire. Saw a couple articles last week that talked about the global economy being out of sync. Your Mm -hmm. take on that? Well, it's true. You know, I think a big theme from 2022 and people thought it was going to hold in 2023 was that there was this global synchronized slowdown and reduction in inflation. And what we're noticing is that things are beginning to move to the beat of different drummers. Uh, This past week, China announced that they were going to try to have some targeted stimulus programs because even though they reopened their economy back in October 2022 from their COVID shutdowns, they realized that, you know, retail sales haven't been accelerating, manufacturing activity hasn't been accelerating like they were hoping. And so they've actually taken to cutting interest rates from their central bank and trying to help prop up growth and spur growth. So you're almost having, huh, China could be accelerating, emerging markets could see some acceleration, But then the developed world is decelerating. So now it's more of a two-speed kind of world as opposed to everybody just sort of marching uh, in synchrony. Who would you say is the most out of whack? Oh, wow. The most out of whack is typically in emerging markets. So I can always point to Venezuela because they are a bit of an outlier when it comes to the authoritarian regime that they have. Always has been. Turkey is also a little bit of an outlier there. Uh, President Erdogan, he just got reelected. And surprisingly, he has brought on actually some rather conventional economists. He had followed some unorthodox policies for a while, and now it seems like he's thinking that maybe we can't do that so much anymore. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you for what you do on behalf of our clients. Oh, thank you. Folks, let's have a casual conversation about a important topic. Work with a fee-only fiduciary. Know the difference. AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. See you next Saturday at 10. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ.